Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I'm going to be joined today by my friend Johanna Mellis and the really brilliant scholar Teresa Runstetler. It is a huge pleasure for us to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Runstetler today, uh, who has a new book called Black Ball, which we discuss in depth. Uh, but more importantly, I just want to point say really that that Dr. Runstetler's work. Um, is exemplary of exactly the kind of critical, bordering on an interdisciplinary sports scholarship that we need more of. Um, her insights about race, labor, and U.S. sport, about um, exploitation and youth sport are incredibly insightful and hard-hitting. Um, and it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with her and hear her expand on, you know, the ideas of how she conceives of sport in U.S. culture and beyond. Um, so it's, it's a real joy to have the honor of speaking with her and to share this with you. Just before I throw it to the interview, uh, I want to quickly say um, we'd very much appreciate it if listeners would subscribe to the podcast, if you'd share it with friends, uh, if you'd leave a review and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, again, we are in the midst of a series of recordings. We're hoping to have a lot of great interviews to share with you in the, kind of throughout the summer. That's sort of the plan right now. Um, so please sort of check, check us out every week uh, because we should have something new for you. And hopefully we'll have material that speaks to you about the harm and exploitation that are so fundamental to athletic cultures of all sorts. Thanks. Teresa Runstetler is Associate Professor of History in Critical Race, Gender, and Cultural Studies at American University. She's the author of Jack Johnson, Rebel Sojourner, Boxing in the Shadow of the Global Color Line, and this year, Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the Generation that Saved the Soul of the NBA. She is also a former member of the Toronto Raptors Dance Pack and has worked in public relations for a national sports network. I think that each of these biographical notes is going to be relevant to our conversation today, which is why I mentioned them. Uh, Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, listen, there's like really a million things I want to get <laughs> to in this conversation. So we got we to plunge right in. Um, and the, the, basically, the, I, I would say that the scholarly work you do intersects with you know, almost all the themes that we really like to explore on this podcast, which is why there is so much to talk about, because like you have this book and we could spend easily spend the entire conversation just talking about the book. And we're going to start with the book. But the truth is, you've also written about the youth sport industrial complex, which is something we really want to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, the Jack Johnson, the touching on the Jack Johnson book, your career in the sports industry. Like these are all things we independently like to talk about. So we're going to kind of try to wade through um, as many of them as we possibly can. But again, let's start with the book, which has made an amazing splash. Uh, Johanna and I are in deep admiration of all the coverage that you've got, including reviews in places like The New Yorker. Um, now, the title of the book, Black Ball, obviously plays both in the fact that you're describing how professional basketball 
came to be shaped by black players, a form of black ball, as it were, but also on the fact that those players faced backlash. They were blackballed for their militancy. Could you maybe start by explaining the mainstream kind of moral panic-ish way in which professional basketball in the United States was understood during its so-called dark days, which is sort of how they were described, of the 1970s, and what that narrative, that dark days narrative actively distorts, conceals, and justifies about the racial and labor politics of the era, which is to say the dynamics of the ABA and the NBA. Yeah, absolutely. So the book actually starts out with a very famous article from 1980 uh, that was published in the LA Times by a journalist named Chris Cobbs. And he actually wins this huge award for writing this article in which he, uh, you know, not just insinuates, but the headline says something to the effect of 40 to 75% of uh, professional basketball players are using drugs, cocaine in particular. Um, and when I started to look at um, basketball in the 1980s, because that's sort of where I started, I started with Len Bias in 1986, uh, famed uh, uh, University of Maryland at College Park basketball player who got drafted by the Boston Celtics in 1986, but then subsequently died of cocaine intoxication. And he becomes this figure that uh, Republicans, particularly President Ronald Reagan, uses as a justification for a more punitive war on drugs. So I started backing up from that point, and I hit this article by Cobbs, and I, you know, looked at the literature about the late 1970s and early 80s in professional basketball. And this article kept coming up and it was taken at face value and it would be sort of crossed over in a paragraph as if it was an actual academic study in and of itself. And when you read the article, it becomes very clear that this is, you know, speculation, a lot of it uh, involves anonymous sources. Clearly, the statistic is, you know, very wide ranging. You know, there's also a panic about the use of freebase cocaine um, at the time, which was sort of the precursor to the use of crack and the sort of democratization of cocaine. And so, in a nutshell, that. I think that article has become emblematic of how people view the late 1970s history of professional basketball, and particularly the NBA. Uh, the NBA is being uh, a, a league that was too black, and by black, not just meaning racially, but also the historical and contemporary baggage that came uh, along with that in the context of the urban crisis or the so-called urban crisis, I'm putting that in scare quotes, um, you know, increasing violence in quote-unquote inner cities, particularly created by young Black men. It became emblematic of Black players who were drug-addled, who had these criminal tendencies, um, and they were often blamed for the downfall or the, the supposed downfall of professional basketball in that era, as if 
it was the player's fault for causing, you know, essentially a financial crisis in professional basketball. And I just, you know, maybe it's just that I've studied this for so long and I, you know, my earlier work on Jack Johnson, uh, you know, he was completely misunderstood in my estimation and I just didn't believe that narrative. I wanted to unpack what that racialized narrative about professional basketball, a sport that had become not just demographically Black, but dominated by Black players and Black style. It had become aesthetically and politically Black. And for me, what I ended up finding out was that that larger narrative of a decline in professional basketball tracked very neatly with a larger narrative about decline, uh, the decline of the United States in that period, which also happened to go alongside increasing racial integration. So I couldn't help but see the earlier moment, and this gets to this question of the kind of messy labor politics, which were incredibly racialized in uh, professional basketball in the early part of the 1970s. That period generates or generated its own backlash. And you see that in this kind of moral panic in the latter part of the decade. But in fact, you know, if you look at the late 60s and the early 70s in professional basketball, this was a time when Basketball was entering a period of innovation when it was transforming demographically, when the old color line, um, in the sense of the informal color line in professional basketball of keeping, you know, only a few players, black players on a roster um, and, you know, kind of controlled integration, all of that flew out of the window with the rise of the American Basketball Association or the ABA because it created this massive competition with the NBA. Both leagues needed talent and they now had to go for young, talented Black basketball players. And unfortunately for them, um, some of those basketball players challenged the monopolistic practices of the the league the leagues themselves um, by bringing down you know blackballing by exposing the inequities of the four year rule in the case of Spencer Haywood or by challenging the reserve clause in the case of Oscar Robertson et al v the NBA so for me it's that earlier moment in the 1970s a moment of transformation that you know, breeds its own form of moral panic in the form of a backlash against Black players. I know that was a really long way of answering your question, but that sort of explains how I got to the project and some of the larger questions that were really animating this study. Absolutely. That was fantastic, Teresa. And I, I really like how you started with like this anecdote of right, this article that you found very, very problematic, seems to have... Uh, violated like journalistic integrity, 
but I'm not like, a, you know, I'm not a journalist by profession, but that just seems to be what was going on. And then the way that you kind of zoom, use this hook to sort of zoom out and not just obviously connect it to like the sport politics of the day, but the larger like national racial politics, racial capitalism and, and into the labor issues uh, that were at play here. And that leads really nicely, like the last few things that you said lead really nicely into this next question which is how did black professional basketball players in the 1970s, how did they specifically challenge the hegemony of white owners as well as a white sports media complex to build an athletic labor movement that reshaped racial politics and professional sports work in the U.S.? Great question. Um, I, I think let's, I'll start here. Um, for a long time, I think the 70s have been overlooked as a moment of athletic activism, because we've been so focused on the late 60s with the revolt of the Black athlete. And what I was finding was a lot of the scholarships sort of stopped in 1968, 1969, and didn't really look at what happens to those college players, particularly in the, in the case of professional basketball, once they head into the professional ranks. Did they just become, you know, sellouts, quote unquote? And a, and a lot of the, the literature um, seems to point in that direction. But I think it's because we've been looking in the wrong place. So the players of the early 1970s weren't really necessarily out in the streets calling out, um, for example, in the same vein. Um, as Black athletes more recently talking about Black Lives Matter, calling, about in, calling out inequities in larger society. That wasn't really the focus of a lot of the professional basketball players that I looked at in the early 70s. They certainly understood that their situation as professional athletes, who were also young Black men, in the context of, uh, of, you know, racially unequal society in the United States, that those things mattered, that context mattered. Um, but what they were most interested in doing was actually reshaping the terms of their own labor within the context of sport. Um, and so once you start looking there, what were the labor fights? How are they organizing themselves? in uh, professional associations. The MBPA, uh, I think in this period from the mid 60s on became one of the more powerful uh, players associations in professional basketball. And I think that's in large part thanks to the work of Oscar Robertson, who, uh, you know, during the Oscar Robertson et al. v. the NBA, which was a, a challenge to uh, the reserve clause in uh, professional basketball, he really wanted to turn the union into a kind of activist organization in the same vein as uh, civil rights organizations, because he had come through um, his career in his formative years watching civil rights in action. Um, so once you start looking there, you begin to uncover things like uh, a number of antitrust cases that were led, incidentally, by Black players. Black players became the face of a series of antitrust 
cases in the early 70s. So I start out with Connie Hawkins et al. Or sorry, Connie Hawkins v. the NBA. Um, Connie Hawkins' case, he was uh, unjustly accused of being um, part of a game-fixing scandal in 1961. He subsequently got kicked out of the NCAA. Nobody would touch him there. Uh, the NBA completely blackballed him for years, despite the fact that there was really no evidence that he was uh, part of this game-fixing scandal. And they didn't do any due diligence to check into that. They just simply blackballed him. So his case really exposed how the NBA and its member teams operated like a monopoly. And he, his case accused them of essentially performing a group boycott against him. So, you know, when, when Colin Kaepernick, for example, you know, did his silent kneeling protest and then subsequently couldn't find any work in the NFL, I couldn't help but think, oh, there, there's a clear precedent for this. The NFL is acting, you know, as a monopoly because they know that they're the only game in town for American football, and they're basically blackballing him. Um, then you have Spencer Haywood, who comes into the league, and, you know, he ended up becoming the first hardship, uh, hardship draft um, draftee into the American Basketball Association because the two leagues were fighting over players, Basketball Association uh, basically wanted to be able to recruit younger talent than the NBA. The NBA at that time had something called a four-year rule, which required that any player entering the draft had to be four years beyond their high school graduation. Now, if you think logically about this, and you know there were folks who were writing about this at the time, exposing the fact that. This was essentially a gentleman's agreement between the NBA and the NCAA, whereby the NCAA would maintain its free farm system for the NBA, and the NBA agreed that they would not touch their talent during those four years. So this was, again, another kind of monopolistic practice designed to control the flow of labor into uh, the professional league. and you know, thereby suppress salaries through the, you know, all of these various draft rules. And Spencer Haywood's case, um, Spencer Haywood v. the NBA, essentially brought that four-year rule down. Um, and, and it had a particular meaning for Black players at that time, because many of them were coming out of situations of dire poverty. Um, somebody like Spencer Haywood himself grew up in Silver City, Mississippi, you know, he literally was a tenant farmer. So there's this one quote where he talks about the fact that uh, professional um, teams, team owners, treat their players like tenant farmers. I mean, he wow. understood that <laughs> viscerally, right? He understood that viscerally and, and was able to, through, you know, just standing his ground, bring down that, um, that rule. And all of that really led up to Oscar Robertson at Alvi, the NBA, 
um, which was essentially uh, uh, another antitrust case that challenged not just the reserve clause. That's what it actually successfully um, stripped out of, um, uh, you know, the NBA. But it also attacked the draft system and other forms of monopolistic practices like blackballing. So it was, you know, challenging every kind of tactic that the NBA was using in order to control uh, players and to suppress their wages. Um, so all of that activity, to me, to say that professional athletes were sort of complacent and sellouts in this period is really overlooking the way that they were attempting to use some of the rules, or not the rules, the examples that they had seen in the revolt of the Black athlete in, you know, Black power and civil rights, and apply them actually in the sporting realm. And it, and of course, we see the benefits of that today in terms of, you know, rising salaries, increasing rights, um, the ability to move, the question of uh, athlete autonomy and mobility. So it's such a crucial period, and yet I think has been, by and large, overlooked and mischaracterized. Absolutely. That was a, that was such a beautiful answer. And, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, we point to like the 1960s and then it seems like we kind of hop to like the 2010s and obviously there are several decades in between. And so to follow up with that, I'm wondering, you know, why do you, why is it that we have kind of skipped over the 1970s? Like what kind of have you found to be, if you found there to be a reason, because like you really convincingly show that the 1970s is such a crucial moment kind of leading up to this, you know, this piece in 1980 that you talked about earlier. Um, and relatedly, like you've, done a great job of, of, um, of explaining some of the people and the stories that um, are part of this history. And we're wondering if there are other names and stories that you think we might, or you think that we should know from the era and what might be their legacy today? Hmm. Okay. Well, let me, let me start with <laughs> Sorry, the first part question. of that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. We can always come back to the second one. <laughs> I mean, so I think part of the, the silence on the seventies is Partially because I think historians are in general right now are just discovering the 70s. Um, I think there's always this time lag, uh, mm -hmm. particularly for historians. And I remember I gave a presentation on Len Bias at Johns Hopkins University department there. And somebody in the department said, well, how do you feel, you know, studying such recent history? And I was like, well, <laughs> I was 11 years old at that time. So it's not like I had any preconceived notions of what 1986 meant or, you know, what it was like. So I think there is that kind of time bias for historians. Um, I also feel like, you know, so much energy has been put into looking at social movements of the 1960s. Um, and there has been this long-standing declension narrative, in, particularly in African-American history, um, that, you know, Black power and the move to more radical race-based um, social movements, in effect, killed the civil rights movement, right? And it's more universalist, kumbaya-type politics. Um, it's more uh, 
achievable goals, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, subsequently, I think a lot of work over the last 10, 15 years has been absolutely challenging that broader narrative. Um, and I think that that broader narrative has influenced um, sporting history. We've just assumed that after 1968 and the end of the Olympic Project for Human Rights, that there was just nothing after that. But clearly, you know, if you track where these guys go, <laughs> they were going somewhere and they were bringing that 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 same spirit of defiance with them, but they were expressing it in different ways. Um, so I think we have to be a little bit more capacious about what we understand athlete activism to be, um, you know, and if that means trying to change the shape of the sporting industry, we should actually take that seriously as a form of um, activism within the larger black freedom struggle. You know, that they're not two separate things. They're they're they are two sides of the same coin. They are they're, you know, part and parcel of each other. Um, so I think that that's part of it. I think also this narrative of decline in the case of sports is per particularly pervasive. Um, the narrative of commercialization, because this is also the period in which sports become much more profitable much more corporatized. Um, they also become blacker. Um, and I think that there's this assumption that, you know, with the rise of commercialization, that these guys were not invested anymore in a kind of social movement politics or, or that they didn't have any critiques at all because look at how much money they were making. I think that also misses the point. Because a lot of these guys, and you see this in Oscar Robertson's testimony in front of the Senate subcommittee, you know, where they're, you know, harassing him about making $100,000 a year and asking him if he thinks he's worth it. And he says, yeah, of course, actually, I think wow. I'm worth more. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Right? So I, I think that for so long, these, you know misunderstandings have actually prevented us from asking different questions about the period. Um, so that was your first question. I can't remember the second one. Uh, yes, there is, so you've done a great job of um, naming a few people already. So uh, we were just wondering if there are a couple people that you think like people should kind of walk away from knowing that deserve to be more well-known in this history. And if so, like what are their, what are their legacies today? Yeah, absolutely. So I can think of two people in particular, Wally Jones, who shows up in chapter four of the book. Um, this was somebody who, you know, was very much um, what we would think of as a classic athlete activist. He uh, was out there as a community organizer um, in Philly. And then also when he moved to uh, he created an organization called Concerned Athletes in Action, and, you know, it was an anti-drug, um, you know, summer program for kids in uh, Black neighborhoods, you know, where essentially there was no recreational programming, no anti-drug um, programming that wasn't 
punitive in some way. Um, so this is a guy who was out there and ironically then becomes wrapped up in this uh, early drug panic in the NBA and gets accused, I mean, sort of obliquely accused in the media of using cocaine, even though he wasn't. Um, but his contention all along was that uh, the team had used uh, the pretense of his supposed cocaine addiction as a way of invalidating his contract. And I, you know, I dug through a lot of players' memoirs and found that this was actually kind of an uh, an open secret in the NBA that if they wanted to invalidate your contract or put some kind of shadow of suspicion over you, they would sort of not really say it, but give enough information that you might be on drugs and that this would be a way to sort of unload your contract. Oh, but, can I just interject? Yeah, Teresa, I just want to interject. Yeah. You know, because Derek and I have been working on this book about college football, talking yeah. to former players. This is exactly what they're doing today. Yes. To, to cut people, to <laughs> yeah. end their scholarships. It's yeah. drug testing. It's drugs, especially in college football, because people use marijuana yeah. to cope with the physical and mental burden of right. playing football, right? Like it's literally they're self-medicating and it's accepted universally. Like everyone accepts it because you know what? It's actually a really good form of right. self-medication right. in a lot of ways, but they also know if that means if everyone's using it, if we want to cut you, we test you. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so I just, it really, yeah. that really intersected with what you're saying for me. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And, and this is a try, you know, this was a tried and true technique that was used in the early 70s, you know, particularly when the league was becoming more black. And because, you know, racial identity and, and blackness in particular and the use of drugs were so fused in the American imagination, this became a very convenient way to not just discipline individual players, but to discipline the entire you know, labor force of the NBA. And that's, you know, another sort of argument that I'm trying to make in the book is that they were, you know, the powers that be in the NBA were ironically, you know, using the, the sort of specter of drugs to discipline the players in the midst of these very important labor fights. So it's interesting that we can sort of see <laughs> that this is still... A yes. tactic being used now, and we should talk because I have I have um, another piece that I'm working on for um, the Journal of Contemporary History that actually looks at the moment where they take amphetamines out of or attempt to take amphetamines out of the NFL, um, and the players are like, "Wait a second, that was sort of we were getting that from trainers." <laughs> Yes, exactly. And now we oh have to goodness. go into the streets and get this stuff. And now you're subsequently criminalizing us for doing that, even though Precisely. you you changed the you changed the rules of the game without even consulting us or lessening the wear and tear on our bodies. So yeah, this has a oh, long, boy. long history. Exactly. Um, and just to turn that on just to turn that on its head for a second, we had a story where a player told us in fact, the coaches came to the players as dealers yeah. for pot yeah. because they knew that was a safer way for them to get access. And they knew right. that the players, but of course, 
when it comes to the discipline piece, right, they can just right. turn that around because no one's drug testing the coaches. That's not absolutely. an issue for them, right? Anyway, yeah. fascinating. Okay, yeah, so, we should talk. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, this has a it has a longer history, and I I am convinced that there is also, you know, clearly a racial dimension to this that makes it much easier to use that as a form of of discipline, labor discipline. Um, so Wally Jones is very important, I think, to these larger trends in the sporting industry. Um, I think somebody else who's really important is the subject of, of Chapter 5, and that's Simon Gurdine. And he was, and, and whenever I mention Simon Gurdine, most people have no idea that this guy existed. Um, in yeah, I must early... admit that's true of me too. I, I, I fall into that. So yes, please yeah. tell us more. <laughs> yeah, so so he was the highest ranking black administrator in professional sports in all of North America in the early 1970s. And this was a guy who came into uh, sports administration, not the typical way. He wasn't an ex-player. Um, he wasn't, you know, he hadn't already made a bunch of money playing sport. He wasn't really an insider in the NBA. Uh, he was part of the rising black professional class in the 1970s, was educated um, at public universities in New York City, ended up going to law school, um, and he started out actually practicing antitrust law um, in, in corporate law. And so he got hired by Walter Kennedy, who was the commissioner of the NBA um, in the uh, early 70s, and worked his way up, became a very trusted, um, I don't want to say assistant, because part of what I, I sort of uncovered was that actually he was kind of like the guy who was doing all the, the work <laughs> in, in the, um, the NBA's offices. Um, and he, he seemed to be the heir apparent to Walter Kennedy. And in um, 19, I think it was 1975 when Kennedy um, was going to retire. Um, but of course we know that Larry O'Brien became the next commissioner in large part because he had political connections in D.C. And the NBA was hoping that they would be able to, you know, get the antitrust waiver from Congress in order to merge with the ABA and get rid of that uh, pesky Oscar Robertson suit. Um, but Simon Gordine, he's a really interesting case because, again, he's not sort of this radical figure. But he is one of the few black faces in upper level sports administration. And you can clearly see in his interviews at, the, at that time um, that this was a guy who, you know, he had a kind of racial consciousness, but he also understood that he had become <laughs> a kind of black face of the league. And that there was a real tension there. And to me, some of what this points to is the fact that, so for example, right now, there's a lot of calls for more Black ownership, more Black faces in, um, 
you know, the front office and also in the league office, which I think is important. Right. But I'm not sure that that's going to radically reshape, you know, the structure. Yeah, the structure of of the sports industry. You know, it's not changing the logic uh, of of how the sports industries work. Um, so I'm very suspicious of that line of reasoning, and I think Simon Gordine's case, even though he doesn't make it to commissioner, really exposes the you know the pitfalls of that strategy because at the end of the day um he still was management and there was still that you know distinction between the guys on the floor the laborers and the management and regardless of whether that person was black or white they had opposing interests Exactly. So I'm always very suspicious of these calls for more ownership because I'm not convinced that that would radically reshape the extractive nature of the sports industrial complex. Yeah. Oh, I mean, again, just just couldn't couldn't possibly agree with you more about that. I mean, we view. I mean, I view college football coaches, for instance, as essentially overseers, right, within the plantation dynamics of college sport. And at the end of the day, right, if the overseer's job is to extract value from the body of the athlete, it doesn't really matter what they look like. It might right. benefit them personally, but like the the structure remains the same, as you say. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's the thing we have to be always like, you know, we have to be locked in. If if this is a, a political struggle. And and we have things we want to achieve in that struggle. We got to keep our eyes on the prize, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the prize is not empowering a few more people to be exploiters. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm with you. So let me just now, you two are both historians. This is brilliant historical work. I mean, like I, I sometimes, I must I was a, I was a history my, uh, major <laughs> as an undergraduate. I was a history major as an undergraduate. Like I like history, but sometimes like, I don't know, as I've kind of... I became more preoccupied always with like, I want to know about right now. (laughs) I want want to be thinking about sort of structure right now. And then therefore, sometimes I get like a little bit bogged down in the, just like the, the, the historical detail. And that, that's not what's happening here. I think actually both of you are examples of historians who write with like a real flair that is like incredibly compelling to read. It, it, it's, transparent in reading your work, why it matters at all times, right? So um, that's just one thing I want to say, but also that, uh, I'm saying this because I also come at your historical work from a slightly different perspective. You know, this year I've been teaching, I was hired into a social theory position in a sociology department. So I come at it from a theoretical perspective and often there's a bit of a tension between historians and theorists. I had, I had an mm-hmm. undergraduate prof at the University of Toronto who was basically like, I hate theory. Don't do theory. Like theory is a waste of time. It's bullshit. Um, and I'm not saying that's you at all, but I'm actually, the reason I'm bringing this up mm-hmm. is because in reading your work, it's just popping for me in terms of what feels like in the best possible way, um, like the influence of especially a kind of the cultural studies project, you know, mm-hmm. the Stuart Hall and the Birmingham mm-hmm. School. And this year we've been reading with my students um, the mass, their masterpiece, uh, Policing the Crisis, mm-hmm. which is about this sort of phenomenon of the moral panic around black mugging in, guess what, the United Kingdom of the 
1970s. 70s, right? yes. The 70s. <laughs> and they're arguing there that that moral panic around this sort of putatively ubiquitous black mugging phenomenon, this criminality, as you talk about this sort of the so-called urban crisis, right? That's right. the American version, but we have this sort of UK iteration of a similar and simultaneous phenomenon. So this narrative is sort of rehearsed endlessly in the media of the era. But the argument of the cultural studies folks in Stuart Hall is that that discursive realm is a reflection of a political economic crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Owing in part to immigration policies designed to bolster a labor supply by attracting migration from the Caribbean that ultimately allows for the suppression of wages. And then what we get is a kind of oversupply of labor, right? Which mm -hmm. becomes a crisis when we enter this realm of recession and you talk about stagflation, which leads to a massive surge in unemployment because who was thrown off by capitalism? Well, of course, it's these racialized migrants, right, who have been brought into the system. They're the very first ones who are thrown out of the labor force and then end up in this desperately positioned space, right, where we're trying to subsist in a society denying employment opportunities. And this is what racial capitalism is, right, is understanding the way in which the kind of phenomena of capitalism, the dynamics of capitalism rely on race for maximal exploitation. Um, but instead of articulating it as such in like the media or the popular understanding of what is going on in British society in that moment, what we get instead is this coding of the crisis of essential black criminality. Right. So that the very victims of capitalist crisis and colonial exploitation are instead figured as the perpetrators of mm -hmm. the, any problem that exists. I mean, this is a very long way of saying, but it just yeah. feels to me like there are so many tremendous resonances between the stories you're telling in Black Ball and this kind of history. Um, do you see them in the same way? It was, was Stuart Hall and company kind of an influence on you? I'm just really curious to hear you speak on it. So I was actually I was trained in an interdisciplinary program. So I came out of uh, history. <laughs> so I was trained in history at York University. Um, oh my goodness, yes. And which was my very PhD, traditional. My graduate alma mater. Okay, yeah. so so but okay, back in the mid to late 90s, it was, you know, pretty conservative. I did mostly early modern European history, um but took a course in post 45 civil rights history that just kind of blew my mind. Ended up um, at Yale studying African-American studies and history. So I was actually, you know, studying, um, studying under Paul Gilroy initially when I oh, started well, my graduate my question. Program. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I was going to come to the Black Atlantic labor yeah. later. So yeah. there, there well, you so go. The okay. first, so the first book about Jack Johnson was really a way for me to try and find um, historical evidence uh, to show that this this idea of um, particularly African American uh, internationalism um, that that existed and was being discussed by ordinary people in the early 20th century, because a lot of the scholarship at the time sort of started at the Italo-Ethiopian crisis in 1935, and I just didn't believe that it just popped up out of nowhere. So, you know, Jack Johnson became, you know, a way for me to look at that question, but then also connect it to this question of 
capitalism and colonialism. So why is it that Jack Johnson is able to go abroad from 1913 to 1920 and, you know, make a living? How is he able to do that? Why did he go abroad? Well, some of it has to do with a larger market for black spectacles um, that were speaking to the colonial concerns of people in Europe and the settler colonies. So, yeah, it's, it's all over <laughs> my trajectory as a scholar. Um, in terms of the, the, the resonances or, with Black Ball, um, I was really influenced by um, theorists and historians that are asking similar questions uh, in terms of both labor, radical politics, and then also the carceral state. So Veshla Weaver, who's a political scientist, who looks at, um, she has an article called Frontlash, which looks at this sort of, you know, policing of a crisis, right, um, in the same period that I'm looking at. Um, the work of uh, Elizabeth Hinton, who looks at the Great Society as actually being one that um, also incorporated uh, a kind of punitive logic even before we get to Ronald Reagan and uh, the neoconservative turn. I'm very influenced by Ruth Wilson Gilmore and her ideas about, you know, prisons being a very simple solution to complex social problems. Um, and of course, like just my, my ultimate model for historical writing is Robin Kelly, somebody who is able to take a really complex theory, break it down and write about it and provide examples of it in not just compelling ways, but also in a way that, that you know, regular people can understand, right? Um, in easily accessible language. So all of those folks have really kind of shaped my approach to history. And I didn't start out as a quote unquote sports historian. So for me, I always look at the study of sport from a disciplinary perspective, very similar to how uh, a cultural studies scholar might look at um, performance or how they might unpack literature or film, you know, then it's not just about sport for sport's sake, but what work is sport doing um, socially, politically, culturally, et cetera. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I see that. And, that, and, I, and I, feel, I feel resonance with your work that way too, because I kind of also, like my training was not... Um, in a sports specific field, you know, so I, I did my graduate work at York, um, not in history. I think history was a much more disciplinary space at York, mm -hmm. but what ended up happening in the early 2000s is like York really tried to brand itself as the interdisciplinary university. And so what happened was that in a lot of the graduate programs and political science and sociology. I was in social and political thought. Um, we were kind of like all in each other's classes. There was a lot of ferment there across disciplines that was happening. Um, and, uh, 
so, you know, ultimately, I, I too feel like a huge amount of my own sort of training is in ultimately in cultural studies. And, and I was <laughs> seeing cultural studies all over this, which is like, mm-hmm. which makes it so appealing to me. Um, now, and the to, thing is, yeah, like, I read yeah. all of that theory, but uh, the way that I write and, you know, the way my sort of own my philosophy for writing this type of history is that I want to foreground the voices of those that mm-hmm. I'm studying and I want to foreground their analysis. I can help frame it, contextualize it, et cetera, but I'm not going to do a whole Foucauldian analysis in the middle of Black Ball, for example. And that's just my my mode of writing. But I think that it's still important to actually understand these other conversations because they get you to ask different questions and they get you to look in different places for your sources. So that's yeah, my that, my um, plug for reading theory. <laughs> yeah, no, no, good. it's a good plug. And look, it's, what's interesting is I think that Again, that this must be why I've, I'm so attracted to your work is that, you know, you're a historian, but you have that kind of orientation. And I'm now ostensibly a sociologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have a very similar approach because, OK, I'm not looking at the historical archive and unearthing voices that have been sort of silenced and submerged in history, which you're doing. And you're finding you're telling us these things that were said that we didn't know were said. And you're rewriting our understanding of the past through their voices, which is amazing. And what we're trying to do and like what Derek and I are trying to do in this project is like, let's talk to college football players who can't speak in public normally because they'll be punished for it. Right. But if you grant them anonymity and give them kind of a space to tell their stories truthfully, then suddenly we're learning and hearing things that we didn't know in sort of popular culture about what is happening in a world like football. And so ultimately that story, too, is about like, let's hear the voices of the people who are participating. That mm-hmm. That is what needs to be foregrounded. So that's where I think we have actually almost an identical project, um, just with a different disciplinary orientation. Um, OK, so. Having gone through this history, and of course we could spend more time with it, but like what your book does do, and that's part of, I think, everything we've just been talking about in terms of sort of the methodology and the project and the theoretical orientation is you are speaking to the present moment too, right? You don't leave that out. There's a way in which you're saying that there's there's a purpose for thinking through this past, not just for recuperating what has been lost, but also for helping us reflect on a new moment of representation in political economy, right? Which has direct linkages, obviously, with this past. And so clearly in the decades after your book is set, we have seen both the retreat from politics. And this is what's really interesting, right? Because what you were essentially saying to us in this conversation is, you know, we have the revolt of the black athlete in the 1960s. And then we have this, the the conventional telling of the histories in the 1970s, there's a retreat, right? There's a way in which things become commodified and people start to make more money and it just, you know, the politics are evacuated. But certainly, if that's not true in the 1970s, there's even a stronger sense that that comes to take place in like the sort of Michael Jordan era of the 1990s, right? Mm -hmm. With those sort of Republicans buying sneakers two piece and all that. And then we also see in that sort of late 90s moment, early 2000s, the criminalization of other figures, like certainly like a figure like Allen Iverson and especially someone like Ron Artest and all of those Indiana players in that kind of the malice of the palace. And then we've also seen the emergence of an era after that characterized as player empowerment led by LeBron James, which has seen players exercise leverage in order to produce the team configurations and coaching dynamics they perceive to be favorable to them. And this culminated in the kind of 
labor action slash almost labor action in 2020 surrounding the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that was ultimately an infamously largely diffused by former President Barack Obama. So this is a long buildup to say, in light of your work on the racial and labor politics and NBA history, especially in the 70s that we've been talking about, what do you make of this moment? Is it truly an era of player empowerment? And perhaps more importantly, how should we understand the representations of the NBA in the context of political economic conditions today? Oh, that's a lot to unpack. Um, and of course, you're asking a historian to talk about the present. So yes, um, that's what I like to do. Yeah. That's exactly what I like to do. That he does. That he does. Always making us uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I mean, okay. So immediately when you you started asking this question, a conversation that I had with another podcast. Really, um, you know, deep into NBA politics and and thinking about the NBA today. Um, and, and she had said to me, there is this perception that in the NBA, it, it's the, the players run the league and that this is seen as a, a bad thing. <laughs> um, yes, yes, exactly. And, and that struck me as really interesting because, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is, you know, who, whom, and I'm not the first to say this, like who makes the game? Is it the league or is it the player? Now, of course, the league is very invested in telling you that they are required, their rules and their management are required in order to run a league that will be profitable, that will, you know, serve its fans that will, you know, um, produce a good quote unquote product. But I think there's also an argument to be made that in fact, and I'm sure you, you all given your, um, your sort of take on this, uh, that the players actually make the game, right? If the players aren't doing what they're doing, then there, there is nothing there. Um, so I think that that's that's an interesting kind of tension that I'm I'm thinking about, um, especially now. I'm, I've been doing a lot of reading on the early history of basketball when there was no league, or one when there was no dominant league, and and there was a lot of player jumping, um, and you know teams were barnstorming, and so thinking about what you know. What is this dynamic between players and the league? Now, to obviously, I'm trying to sidestep your question here. No, for the present moment, I mean, I feel like actually, ever since maybe the early 80s, we're in a period of relative detente between the players and um the league officials whereby there's there's been these moments and you mentioned them particularly with Allen Iverson and um this sort of dynamic of the quote unquote dunk days with Allen Iverson and Ron Artest and the perception that the league was becoming too quote unquote hip hop which essentially means it became too black absolutely um, so I think there's been these moments and then of course David Stern stepped in and you know instituted what I think were largely public relations 
type rules in terms of a dress code, et cetera, as a way of, you know, letting the, the, the NBA's fan base know that, don't worry, we've got it under control. You know, we're going to make sure that these guys are respectful and respectable. Um, yeah, so, it comes back to that theme of discipline you were talking about before, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's more performative than it is actually Good point. discipline. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and you see that in the drug policy that I talk about in, you know, the period that I was looking at in Blackball. I mean, it's mostly just public relations spin. There wasn't a lot actually being done at that time to really address an issue of drugs. And a lot of the players at that time were actually saying alcohol is a real problem, but there's absolutely nothing being done about that. Oh, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, today, I think the, the players in the NBA do have a certain amount of leverage, both individually and also collectively through the NBPA. Um, that's rather unique in professional sports, whereby, um, you know, back in 2020 um, and during uh, the time in the bubble, uh, they were able to pull off what was essentially a wildcat strike. I wouldn't call it a boycott. No, thank you. Thank you. Please, no, no more talk of strikes as boycotts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't a boycott. It was a wildcat strike. You know, if if they were on a uh, you know, an assembly line, they would have just sat down and refused to keep to producing whatever they were producing. Um, but I think, you know, they're able to do that because the NBA realizes that they have a certain access, uh, unmediated access to their fan base now that the league can't really challenge in the same way that they did back in the 70s when the only outlets were mainstream media. Um, and, you know, the, the players collectively, um, one of the arguments that I make is that without all of that activism in the early 70s that radically reshaped their, uh, their contracts, they wouldn't be able to do the things that they're doing they would be under much more uh, threat of, you know, particularly for the more marginal players, under much more threat to be just disposed of. And that's not to say that people aren't being disposed of. I think the other thing that we need to look at are the players that are really just, you know, at the level of disposability, who are just on the cusp of, you know, just making it into the NBA. Perhaps those are the folks that we should be looking at rather than the LeBron James, et cetera. Are they truly empowered in a way? I'm not entirely sure of that. Um, but I think that the other thing that the NBA has realized is that there is money to be made in being quote unquote woke, not to use not to use an overused and, you know, uh, mischaracterized term. But there is actually money to be made in positioning itself in the marketplace as the place where folks um, who have those politics can feel good about watching their sport, 
Right, you know? right. Exactly the same way that Nike used Colin Kaepernick in those campaigns, right? People were burning Nike jerseys in the streets and their stock was going straight up. Yeah, which was another really, and again, this is sort of the danger in getting distracted from the structure of the sporting industry. I found that completely curious. I mean, I understand the guy needs to make a living, but I found that yes. completely curious given the fact that I was around during the anti-sweatshop stuff that was going exactly. on particularly in an earlier era. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like right? how, I mean, actually those two fights are connected, which is one of the arguments that I make in that um, Journal of Sport and Social Issues uh, article, more than just play, unmasking black child labor in the athletic industrial complex, is that actually we need to think about those, you know, threads that connect activism in one area with activism in another area. Um, because structurally, you know, they're absolutely imbricated. Right. So hopefully and that's a so good, that's so, a good no, a uh, segue to your next question. It, it, it's, a, it's a great segue <laughs> to the next question. And I know Johanna's going to ask this next question, but I just got to say, just to, to even to riff on that just slightly more, because it's like they have so Nike so successfully laundered its image that mm -hmm. Um, my students at Duke, right? Like when I was teaching them and they were, there was a class, students were really enthusiastic about sport. They were teaching, like taking a first year class on social inequality in sport or labor in sport. And they had no idea about sweatshop ink, right? Like we grew up in an era mm -hmm. where Nike was synonymous with, that was what they represented in popular culture and like, you know, in the political economy. And, and now they represent something completely different. And it's really not a lot of time that it took for them to make that transition. Yeah, and yeah. I think that there's a lot of sports washing that's going on. I mean, look at some of the owners of, you know, in the NBA um, who are using their connection by buying into teams to sort of sports wash themselves and make themselves look progressive, you know. But that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I'll let jo Johanna ask her question. Yeah, no, and and I um, I'm really I'm really glad that you included this um this this part at the end of your book where you talk about kind of the possibilities of solidarity within athletic labor because it's something that like we have talked about on the podcast when we had Joel Anderson from Slate come on talking about you know like what can for example what might black athletes do in the state of Florida for example to address you know encroaching fascism and all these things. And so I'm going to read this like paragraph from your book, which I'm never great at like reading paragraphs aloud. So like bear <laughs> with me. But this is so fantastic. You say, quote, although the players have reshaped the industry for members of their bargaining unit, there is still so much work to be done. Now, more than ever, the sports industry as a whole is ripe for a more expansive vision of racial and labor politics, one that reaches back to aid, to aid former NBA and ABA players who lack today's labor protections and now struggle to make ends meet, <clears throat> one that embraces the multitude of workers who make all aspects of the games possible, speaking to some of what you just mentioned, uh, from concessions to uniforms to halftime entertainment, one that stands in support of, quote, amateurs and the NCAA who are striving for better working conditions and fair compensation, 
and one that rejects the heteropatriarchal structure of sporting culture and raises its voice in support of women, trans, and non-binary athletes calls for equal pay and treatment. This is a labor this is the sports labor movement of the future, and because of the relative power and fame and their enduring commitment to justice, NBA players can help make it happen, end quote. So yeah, so could you just sort of expand on the different threads that you pulled together here and how you might imagine this kind of actually like how how this could be a future for um, athletic labor and activism? Yeah. So, I mean, I was really thinking about, I, I think I was thinking about this question that, that Nathan was asking about what is, what do we do in the present now? Cause a lot of folks are asking me, well, what now, you know, that players have, you know, managed to make their situation a lot better. And I, you know, I, I feel like a lot of times we want athletes to look beyond sport. So, you know, well, let's, uh, I don't know, let's talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, that's where we should be putting our energy. And then, you know, interestingly, of course, the sports uh, leagues then end up co-opting that and managing it into these foundations that do quote-unquote community work. And I don't think that that's the answer. I don't think athletes need to look beyond the sporting industry at all to find spaces for activism. And that's, that's really what I was trying to point to in um, that paragraph, that actually there's all of these ongoing racial and labor fights within the sports industries. So whether we're talking about, um, uh, you know, the, the, the status of NCAA athletes, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, women and non-binary athletes and, uh, you know, their uh, attempts to get equitable treatment and payment. I mean, those are fights that are right there for the taking. We don't even need to look beyond, um, you know, beyond the arena to find those ones. Um, and, you know, my own history as somebody who, you know, made money during university by dancing for the Toronto Raptors dance pack, I saw firsthand how many people are actually involved in putting on the show of a home game. And it's a lot of people. Um, so why aren't we talking about, you know, the folks who clean the stadium and the folks who serve the food? You know, uh, I mean, the people who provide entertainment. All of those folks are workers in the sports industrial complex. So... I feel like, and maybe a bit of it was sort of gesturing to the fact that we need to get beyond this, this conversation about, oh, we just need more Black owners. Oh, we just need more Black coaches. Mm, okay, I think we can actually do some more significant things if we're looking at not just the most of us or, or the, 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 the highest profile folks, the folks with the most power, but what about if we look at the least of us in the sense of their status, power, and um, earnings within this industry. What if we look there and start there? 
that would radically, I think, reshape the kind of activism that could be done. Um, you know, I don't know what that would look like. I think that that's, you know, more for, a, you know, a labor organizer, community organizer to think about. But I feel like we've just been so caught up in particular ways of thinking about athlete activism that we've we've missed a whole other area um, that, you know, has has a lot of potential and actually needs shaping. Totally. Um, okay. There's, there's still so many things. Like, we've been talking for an hour, but guess what? There's way more that I still want to get into um, and will get into. Um, so you mentioned that for anyone listening who was like, please don't let her leave this without expanding. We're definitely getting back to the dance pack situation. Um, that's, that's coming around. Okay. So no one has to worry that we're going to leave that untouched. But before we get to it, I, there are a couple other things I want to cover first. Um, and one of them is actually circling back to what you were describing much earlier when you were talking about your first book about Jack Johnson. Um, and I just want to touch on that because I'd love to give you a chance to just to share a little bit more. We can't, it's a whole other book. There's only so much we can do here, <laughs> but a chance to at least share with us a little bit about um, what you've already given us a hint of, which is that that book tries to understand the boxer's struggles against white supremacy and racial injustice beyond the borders of the United States, connecting them to global post-colonial movements. And so clearly, as you pointed out, there is a resonance here with the theorizing of the Black Atlantic that offers a more capacious view of the wake of chattel slavery, as Christina Sharp has put it, and the way it has shaped Black experiences around the world. And in that, an explicit rebuke to notions of U.S. exceptionalism, right? That there's a very particular history of slavery that is somehow fundamentally different. It really tries to make the connections between broader colonial histories and the U.S. as a colonial history. So I'm just curious, could you talk a little bit about the significance of your intervention with respect to Johnson um, and sort of how it's maybe located in that Black Atlantic tradition? And even, I don't know, maybe you do, maybe you don't, whether you see continuities between that project and Black Ball. I mean, I definitely do see continuities between that earlier work and Black Ball. Black Ball is much more explicitly within the framework of the United States, and I don't really try to tease out the international dimensions. But it is a story that attempts to understand, in proper context, the political, social, and cultural, and even economic um, significance of, you know, black sporting workers um, and, 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 and attempts to kind of pick apart this notion that uh, that desegregation, you know, was really a victory, uh, you know, a, a complete triumph. Right, to sort of trouble that notion. Because one of the things that I'm looking at in Black Ball is what happens after segregation is taken down in US sport. Well, it hypervisibility leads to all sorts of other problems. And Jack Johnson, who was the first ever Black World Heavyweight Champion in the early 1900s, was hyper, hyper visible. He was the most famous Black man on the planet, the first global Black American celebrity. 
on the one hand, you know, this brought him an exceptional amount of wealth, but he couldn't escape the racial scripts of white supremacy by leaving the United States. Um, he couldn't escape uh, the racial politics of Jim Crow and white imperialism and settler colonialism by fighting white fighters. But in fact, sport is this kind of ambivalent space. I don't know if I'm using the right word, where it has both the potential to disrupt, but also the potential to shore up a lot of, um, you know, not just discourses, but actual practices of racial capitalism. So, I mean, I think that, you know, to me, those projects are absolutely interconnected. Um, but what I was trying to do with Jack Johnson was basically take him out of this very U.S.-centric narrative. Um, he was being used, I think, by a kind of white liberal tradition as this fighter who we wronged in the past. Um, he was unjustly accused of uh, violating the Mann Act, which was a white slave tr uh, slavery act, um, basically bringing women across state lines for the purposes he never did. Um, and, and that, you know, if we just recognize this wrong in the past, then it's all good. You know, like now we can embrace him as a hero. But to me, that story just didn't really explain what he meant in the context of Jim Crow and wider global white supremacy. Um, his legacy is much more insurgent, I think, than that. Um, and, you know, I, I'm convinced that part of the reason why he was never taken up um, as somebody for Barack Obama to, to pardon by a presidential pardon was the fact that he did have these connections to a more kind of radical politics. Um, one that critiqued uh, not just U.S. Jim Crow, but also the workings of um, white supremacy and capitalism and imperialism on the world stage. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I could go on and on about that book, but that's sort yes. of in a nutshell what I was trying to get at. Um, that, no, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. Um... Well, let's just sort of extending that question of kind of a, a radical politics around sport. Um, I, actually, the way that we have kind of connected a little bit recently is that um, we were talking a little bit uh, together about issues around youth sport, right? Uh, and understanding youth sport as a form of child labor. That's where I'm trying to make this connection to kind of a radical politics. Because certainly mm -hmm. to claim that youth sport is child labor is not something that most people want to say or can 
consider. Um, and you have written a really important piece in the Journal of Sport and Social Issues entitled More Than Just Play, Unmasking Black Child Labor in the Athletic Industrial Complex, which really lays it all out there in exactly the way I want it to be laid out there. And you wrote in that piece, how is it that a people who labored for hundreds of years as chattel slaves have now become the ultimate paragons of laziness and leisure in the eyes of mainstream America? At least some of it has to do with the hypervisibility of African Americans in certain types of employment that have been cast as play. Um, I think that that's really a, like a, a beautiful way of putting it. And again, doing that cultural studies work, right, of linking the political economy of racial capitalism to the representational realm of sporting culture. Um, this is, as I said, something that I was thinking about because I, I had co-written a couple pieces with Ian Kennedy about. Um, understanding the Greater Toronto Hockey League or the GTHL um, also as a site. Now, of course, not in the same way as racialized child labor, but mm -hmm. certainly as a form of child labor in that we are talking about industries where a lot of money is being made by some people and it's mm -hmm. all predicated on this sports work slash play of children, right? We code it as play, but I think you agree it takes the form of work. And so I just want to give you a sec, maybe if you wouldn't mind, because because you're thinking about basketball a lot, especially not that you only think about it, but that you have mm -hmm. been for a long time thinking about basketball. Could you walk us through what you think of something like AAU basketball, for instance? Why should we understand that as a form of child labor, but not just child labor, racialized child labor connected to a particular history of racial capitalism? Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I thought about that article. You're actually, I feel like you're making me sound smarter than... <laughs> That work oh, you're, actually. You're very, you're very smart. No, you believe it or not, you are in fact very smart. <laughs> oh my gosh! But you know, I I was what so the genesis of that article, and that was sort of like a one-off conference paper. Um, was was thinking about why is it, and I'm thinking in particular about Hoberman's, um, what is it, Darwin's athlete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. You know, this idea of a sports fixation as a form of black pathology and like, shouldn't we think beyond, you know, sport as a place of black innovation? OK, but whatever, like that's not really doing much for us in terms of advancing a kind of political project that that just leads us back to uh, respectability politics and racial uplift politics. So I really yeah, it's, a, it's to... a liberal fantasy, right? It's like a liberal <laughs> yeah. fantasy that we're like, we have some kind of like meritocracy. And it's like, why are you so obsessed with sports in this meritocracy where you could be doing anything? It's like, have you, have you looked at U.S. society <laughs> at all? You know, have you have you looked at the history of slavery? Because I think that maybe there's yeah. something else going on here. <laughs> or even to understand that. Why is it that people are fixated? Like. Is it just that they're, they've all been duped or is there actually a reason why that, that labor that children are doing in service of the sports industry is actually important, is actually part of a larger structure? So that was really what I was trying to unpack. And I don't think I came around to a term for that, but I was just thinking about it again, that so obviously this is uncompensated labor. They might get things in the, you know, in terms of um, swag, 
like, you know, a few Nike shoes, Adidas shoes, etc. But then that, the act of wearing that swag ends up becoming another form of labor, which is promotion, right? So really thinking about the amount of money that the folks who are, you know, organizing AAU basketball from the sports companies to the coaches, um, how they're all in the flow of money, but the players are not. And I couldn't help but think about the fact that we've talked about this a lot in terms of the NCAA, but I think it actually goes even younger. Um, and it's it's become even more so, I feel, um, especially with the rise of the sneaker companies. And then now with, with social media and the ability to share, I mean, some of these kids are famous you know, and they have huge followings. So how do we not, how do we understand them as, as, as performers of a certain type um, who are performing labor um, that has some value to them um, and, and value to this larger system? And I couldn't help but think of it as a form of aspirational labor. Like it's, it's not, and I'm thinking of this in the same vein that Amira Rose Davis talks about Black women's um, symbolic labor in sport. So they're not actually necessarily getting paid, particularly amateur athletes, but they are performing a certain kind of symbolic labor on behalf of the state, for example, particularly during the Cold War era. So I think that these young basketball players are performing a certain kind of aspirational labor. They are aspiring to get to the next level, and they're also at the same time, becoming aspirational figures to their peers. And they are becoming essentially kind of direct marketers to their communities. And I think that it is a kind of extractive economy. Um, and I couldn't help but think about that in relation to the increasing precarity of, you know, Black communities in the age of mass incarceration. Uh, and I think the two are very much connected. That is extremely troubling and, I mean, fascinating intellectually. But yeah, so thank you so much for for teasing that together for us. And now I really want to p- pivot to uh, what listeners may have been waiting to, to hear more about, <laughs> which is how you blend your personal experiences and your intellectual project together, like how do you weave them together as a, as a really um, such an exemplary critical scholar of sport? And this is something that like we've tried to do on the show and that we are increasingly doing in our work, which is why we just like admire so much how you do it. And as we've mentioned, you worked as a member of the Toronto Raptors dance pack. This is something that you address in the book, pointing to how expectations of all of you as dancers changed as ownership became more corporate. Um, which had the implications of pushing you and your fellow dancers away from hip-hop culture grounded in a multiracial aesthetic, including, from my understanding, away from a less punitive attitude towards body size and towards a far more whitewashed and objectifying image. So can you talk to us, to the extent that you, that you feel comfortable, a bit about your experience in the dance pack, particularly the labor and gender politics, and, and as well as um, uh, on the side of athletic work, and also perhaps the 
the way in which this experience shaped your thinking and academic work? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, um, it took me a long time to actually, quote unquote, come out as a Toronto Mm -hmm. Raptors dancer. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just not something, you know, especially when, you know, when I went to Yale, um, I had just sort of come out of, of being a dancer a few years before. Um, and, and people would hear that I was a dancer and they'd be like, oh, what company were you with? And I'm like, no, not the arty kind. I, <laughs> I was a freelancer, <laughs> I was a freelancer, you know, and I did pop, you know, popular dance. So we did hip hop, et cetera. I was not, you know, with Alvin Ailey, you know, nothing respectable <laughs> like that. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, that was sort of a submerged part of, you know, my, my previous history. Um, but I, I do remember when I was, you know, on the Raptors dance pack, I was usually the one that they would call upon when they would have a journalist, uh, asking about, are you setting women back by, you know, participating in this? And I'm like, that's a really simplistic way of thinking of it. And I, I still hold to this now. Um, I, I understand the critiques. I, you know, I do not want to be completely objectified as a person, as a woman, et cetera. I get it. But for me, as a young person in Toronto in the late 90s, where else could I go to have a cool job where I could make more than minimum wage? And, um, you know, learn hip hop from some of the best dancers in the country. Where could I go and do that? You know, there, there's really no other space to do it and became my entry into the dance industry. So I think it's really kind of simplistic to think of it in those terms. Like, because for me, it was work. It was a, a way of making money to pay for residence fees and the like. Um, And I never saw it as something where, you know, I wasn't getting some value out of it that I wasn't, um, that I wasn't also an athlete. And, you know, anyone who has, you know, danced for a living um, knows that it has very, it has a lot of resonances with the kind of work and working conditions of athletes. Um, And so I feel like that experience of making money based on physical performance really gives me a lot of insight into understanding what athletes are talking about, you know, from a physical point of view, a day-to-day point of view, the need to train yourself, the, you know, the need to keep yourself in the right kind of state of mind and physical um, physical shape. But added to that, and, and you referenced this in, in the question, I also saw that much like the players, you know, we were part of that spectacle in Toronto. And when we moved to what was then the Air Canada Centre, you know, we initially performed at Skydome, um, which was the baseball stadium, and they put in a kind of makeshift um, 
basketball court in there. And then when we moved to the new arena and things became very corporatized, I was actually, I worked for a summer um, helping them transfer uh, folks from uh, Maple Leaf, um, the old Maple Leaf um, hockey stadium into the new stadium and yeah, yeah. Saw Maple many Leaf grown, gardens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maple Leaf gardens. Um, and, and watched many a grown man cry over not getting, you know, equivalent <laughs> seats. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I sort of saw this transformation in, um, the team and how high the stakes got in terms of wanting to appeal to a moneyed, largely white corporate crowd and how that impacted what we were allowed to dance to, how we were allowed to dress. Um, you know, it initially when I joined the team, you felt like you were part of, you know, hip hop culture in Toronto. It was cool. It was cutting edge. But by the third season, um, and that would have been what, 1998, 99, um, it had, it had changed. We were dancing to Will Smith and no, no got much more glittery. And so, you know, I don't know if I had a full critique of it then because I was in my early 20s and not really thinking, um, you know, in these disciplined ways that we do as academics, but something just fell off to me. Um, and then reflecting on it many, many years later, you know, and thinking about it in the context of all the work that I've done on the sports industrial complex, it made a lot more sense of the, the need to sort of discipline our labor, um, both from a, a racial and gendered standpoint. And I, I really love that you included that in the book. Um, it's a reason like, even if you hadn't included in the book, right, we would have asked you that as a question because we think those kind of connections are important. And it's an important way of sort of like that auto-ethnographizing is a helpful mm -hmm. way of thinking about, you know, your scholarly process and methodology, the ideas themselves, like it's all part of it. And I think that that we should be talking more about it. But like, we didn't actually have to tease that out of you because you have it there in the book. And like a trade, I, I think what I'm trying to say is that like a trade book invites it more. But the truth mm -hmm. is, that should be there in an academic book in the same way. That's what I'm actually really trying to get at. That's actually a really mm -hmm. important intervention you're making in the general argument, regardless of how the book is kind of pitched to, to what audience it's pitched. It's really important. To, it allows us to see the point you're making and you have made already in this conversation about the kinds of solidarity that need to exist, right? The expansion of the notion of like what is athletic work or what is work that happens in the kind of political economy of sport more broadly. And that insider perspective is really important to understanding that, you know, so I just think it's, it's, it's wonderful that you included that and shared that again with us here. Um, and then the other thing I think I just want to highlight, we've almost never talked about this, but I, I really think that there's something there when you say that dance work and athletic mm -hmm. work, it's like more than just something in common, right? Like they, these things are like almost 
the exact same thing, except that the that dance work tends to have a much less robust political economy associated with it. Um, perhaps like we have a few shows now, right? The Dancing with the Stars universe, where you suppose people are probably mm-hmm. getting paid something fairly meaningful, but the vast majority of dancers are obviously not being paid in that way. And I had a student at, in one of my classes at Duke at one point who decided like he was, you know, we were doing all this labor and sport talk, but he wanted to write his paper on experiences of like ballet, basically, right? Mm, because he mm-hmm. had been a ballet dancer and was like, man, this is exactly what happens in ballet, right? Yeah. This is the same kind of world of work that you're talking about there. And then the other thing that the dance thing allows us to do if we're being really optimistic is say like one of the problems that happens in the entire universe of sport as a site of spectacle and political economy is the fetish for competition, right? Which feeds capitalism and produces all of these deeply problematic dynamics that have to do with nationalism and race and the imagined community. Mm -hmm. But like, what's the way of imagining ourselves out of that? Well, it seems to me like the most convincing option is to say like, well, we could be, we could be understanding sport in aesthetic terms. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's even a way in which that tradition, that black ball tradition you're talking about, where there's like a kind of style to the game that is like really transcends that instrumental need to just put the ball in the basket. Right. But like, there's an aesthetic way in which sport and basketball is a great sport for this. And we see it with like the and one mixtape, right? For instance, there's a whole genre of basketball that isn't about winning or domination or competition. And it's actually really pleasurable. And I think there's mm-hmm. like, there's something and that like, obviously dance gives us a taste of that, right? Dance is like another way of imagining it. Absolutely. I mean, when you were talking there, it made me think of my colleague's work, um, Onaje Woodbine. He uh, wrote a book called Black Gods of the Asphalt. Definitely recommend it to check it out because he does move beyond this notion of sport as functional, sport as just leading to a professional career, and really looks at um, Black basketball in a contemporary sense through the lens of, of religion as the basketball course be- basketball court becoming a space of uh, commemoration of people who have died from violence in Black communities. Because one of the things that he found was that a lot of these tournaments in the Boston area uh, were being organized around memorializing young uh, black folks who were, you know, killed way too early. Um, so I think there's, there's also a lot of, you know, scholarly examples of moving beyond some of the tried and true narratives that we have about, um, what it means to study sport. Absolutely. No, that, that's, that's great. And that's, that's a great recommendation. We appreciate that. Um, all right. I got one more question for you. Again, this conversation really could go all day, but I know we've, we have <laughs> talked for a long time. I'm just having fun. Okay. So I want to keep it going. But, um, the other theme that we come back to a lot, like we've touched on most of the themes that we explore, but you know, I always get hung up on the sport, uh, the, the sport media complex piece, right? Mm-hmm. And basically, you also have some experience there because you worked for CTV Sportsnet, which um, for for those of us who are not the same age as you and I, uh, is now, <laughs> it's like the predecessor of what is now called Sportsnet, which is one of Canada's primary broadcast, like sort of multimedia sports broadcasting organization. So in other words, it's like one of two main sports outlets in Canada, essentially. Um, so 
I guess what I just want to ask is, could you talk just a little bit about how your experience there may have informed your thinking on the ways in which high-performance sport is represented, right? Because, of course, that's representational work, and your work is about, as we've been talking about, has this cultural studies influence. It's about this connection between representation and politics and political economy. Um, did your experiences working for uh, CDV Sportsnet have an impact there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I I don't want to make it seem like I spent a lot of time at Sportsnet. I was a contract worker there. Um, I was in the lowly position of audience relations as part of the public relations department. So I got all of the complaints about coverage. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's public. so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I had to respond to them. And so, you know, develop these emails to basically you know, try and appease the viewers who were mad that their rugby had been moved from Sunday mornings. <laughs> um, but part of this was also, um, you know, sort of being in the same building as the studio and meeting some of the on-air personalities. And it was always on in the background and chatting with some of the folks there. And I do remember one, one guy in particular had said to me, he was telling me a story about how he was interviewing a black basketball player and had asked him a question about the game. And the player just started thanking God and his family. And he was kind of like, wait, you know, like, what? Well, come on, you know, like answer my question. And I was, I said to him, I said, he, he answered your question. Like he, he said what he wanted to say, like, what, what, what do you want? You know, he's not there to just answer the way that you want him to answer, even though that's sort of the, the social convention. Um, so, but yeah, I just thought there was something about that response and not understanding that actually that was part of the answer to, to thank God and thank his family was his way of talking about the game and its significance. Um, so, I mean, just those little exchanges that, you know, really kind of stuck in my mind and sort of seeing who got on the air, you know, who, um, you know, who ended up being the face of, you know, commentary in different sports. And, you know, I grew up in hockey culture. My brother played hockey for many years up to um, the time he went to, to high school. And I just sort of seeing the kind of masculinist homophobic <laughs> Yes. culture of hockey, yes. you know, and um, I will say this, I did an interview on uh, CBC radio and the most vehemently, uh, uh, you know, racist um, response that I had gotten to any of my writing was from a Canadian. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, that's very instructive, isn't it? Because we have this, um, our discourse of multiculturalism, which is always trying to paper over racism here. Yep. Right, right. So it's, it's you know, I feel like sometimes, you know, Canadians get away. Uh, they're, you know, interrogating their own racial politics by 
you know, projecting it onto the United States, which was all also, I think, one of the impetuses behind the Jack Johnson book and sort of taking him out of the U.S. context was to say, well, actually, France kind of did the same thing. Yes. And Britain kind of did the same thing. And Canada did the same thing. And they are all connected in these these larger discourses. But yeah, um, I, I guess I didn't really realize how all of this would be eventually connected in my academic work. There was nothing intentional about it. It just kind of, I think, came about organically. I didn't have some master plan <laughs> that I would do these things and then end up writing about sport. No, but I think there's so much people, you know, people can learn so much, as especially those who are, you know, maybe in graduate school right now or younger and kind of at different stages in their journey. You know, it's 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 I think really instructive to see how there's all sorts of circuitous paths that take us places that help us do the work we do. And I'm trying to say I'm not trying to say that there's some kind of predestination, but more just the paths we take, whatever they are, they do meaningfully help us then construct our future selves and, and contribute to what we are able to ultimately say. You know, and so there's not necessarily any wrong turns because even the things that at the time don't end up feeling right might have a tremendous impact on what you can say, right, in a, in a later moment. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, Teresa Runstedler, um, thank you so much for joining us. And I just want to say to our audience, the book is Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the Generation That Saved the Soul of the NBA. I, I don't really have to plug. I think after listening to this, you know that you need to go out and get that book. Um, so please do that. And, and thanks so much for taking the time with us. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. 